You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. And this week, I am answering 10 questions. So I um, I asked you guys on Instagram if you wanted to hear more frequent content. And what's the hardest for me is to coordinate guests um, that are working and in busy practices. And that can be a little bit difficult. So every two weeks works better for that. But um, everybody said they want more content. So what I'm going to do is answer 10 questions every other week that are either totally random about medical things, about life, about me, just very random because um, y'all really liked that episode and I'm very flattered. So here we are. 10 questions. So the first question, we're going to dive right in. Um, Botox breakdown. So we've got tons of questions about the kind of the different nuances, when to get it, um, where to get it, why to get it, how to find an injector. So the first thing I would say about when to get Botox, um, this is kind of a hard question to answer, but there's two, there's kind of two ways you can do it. So you can wait till you get wrinkles um, which can be literally any age. I think everybody wants to know a specific age, but I will tell you, I have 40 year olds that barely need any Botox because they're just not super expressive and strong in those muscles. And then I have 25 year olds that need a ton because they're very expressive and they've got like deep, deep resting lines. Um, so there's not a good age. I mean, the age is whenever you feel like you'd like to take that on. So you do you, and you get Botox when you're ready. Um, for me, it was around age 30. I pro like I was a person who could have easily started in my 20s. Um, I have really expressive facial muscles, which is kind of funny if you know me. I'm like very, I'm just expressive, um, and had really deep resting lines. So I started around 30, but then I had a child and nurse forever, and then basically got pregnant again as soon as I was finished nursing and blah, blah, blah. So there was like a four-year period where I couldn't get Botox. It was very sad um, for me. And now I'm kind of working to backwards to combat that. But, you know, it's just, it's totally different. So if you're 25 and you feel like you are getting resting lines and you're ready to get Botox, um, don't let the haters get you down. It's It's okay. There are absolutely people in their 20s and people in their 40s who need totally different things. So it's hard to know. Um, Botox is most commonly given in two areas in the forehead. So in between the eyebrows is called your glabellar complex or the 11s. Some people call it their RBF lines. Um, and then above the eyebrows going kind of across your forehead is the frontalis. Um, that's really probably the most two common areas. And then, then there's a million different ways to skin the cat, right? So you can get your crow's feet done. There's little bunny line things that form on your nose. You can get the corners of your downturned mouth done. You can get smoker's lines. You can get a lip flip. You can get your chin done. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So 
really just whatever, whatever bothers you is what, you know, what you should, should focus on. Um, and how to find an injector, I personally think is, I, I like word of mouth. And the reason I like word of mouth is because I think you can tell with friends and family, you know, better than like a paid advertisement, who's going to work for you. So finding an injector is a really personal thing. Um, you can go to the quote unquote, you know, best person in town. And if they don't fit your aesthetic or say maybe they don't spend that much time with you, or maybe they spend too much time with you, who knows? Um, you may not be as comfortable with the results as, you know, the person down the street who has a smaller practice or a newer practice. So, I mean, it's, it's really all over the place. I would like to give a personal pitch for the skin click because that is who I inject with. Um, and that's, uh, I love everyone who injects with us. So, um, I'm kidding, but not kidding. Yeah. So Botox, it's really personal. Get it when you feel like you want to get it. Um, preventative means that you, those resting lines, meaning that when you're not moving your face, the lines go away. Um, so if you want to be preventative, you should start getting Botox before that happens, if that makes sense. So, um, I feel like that's hard to describe in a voice, but it is what it is. Um, all right. So taking a hard, hard left, got a couple of questions about vaccines per usual. Um, and one person said, respond to slash clarify the idea that mandated vaccines are bad because some people are allergic to vaccines. Okay. Th so this question specifically, if you're allergic to something, an ingredient in a vaccine, don't get it just like any medication. You know, if you're allergic to, and an allergy is, I mean, I don't know how you would know that unless you looked at the bajillions of ingredients that are in there before you got the vaccine. But, um, but yeah, if you're allergic to it, don't get it. I think what this person probably meant and what a lot of the questions are about in, in terms of mandating vaccines is so, so mandating vaccines is tricky. Um, I know that there's something going on in California where they're trying to take away the medical exemption or the religious exemptions. So, you know, it, it's, it's a really tricky conversation because are there children or adults who may have an autoimmune condition or may be immunocompromised and for a period of time specifically shouldn't get a vaccine? And should that be up to the family in conjunction with their provider? I, I personally think, yes, that there should be exceptions for everything, right? Like, I mean except for like seatbelt laws. I don't know, but people are, can do that. I, I'm just trying to think of an example of like how you would give it. That was a terrible example. Just move on. Um, so yeah, I mean, may, taking away the exemptions, I, I don't really understand the logic behind that, except that exemptions have gotten so out of control that you now see states like California who've had multiple measles outbreaks in the last five or 10 years because of so many quote unquote religious exemptions. But the, the interesting thing about exemptions in, in that term is that like you don't even have to put what religion you are or why your religion needs to be you to be exempt from that. So, I mean, the only ones that I can think of are Christian scientists and Scientology, I think. Um, but then like the, the biggest or most common religions in America, Christianity, Judaism, um, let's see, you know, Muslim, Hindu, don't have anything in their religion saying that you shouldn't get a vaccine. So that makes no sense. But um, yeah, so, you know, an allergy is different. I, and we, you know, mandating vaccines, it's kind of like the mask conversation that we're having now. Like, 
maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. It, it's just, I think there's such a mistrust and such a misunderstanding of why these vaccines are important. And we have to go back as providers and ex continue to explain to people, which we're not doing a good job of right now. We, we're not. We're just not doing a good job of stepping back and saying, okay, why are patients questioning this? Why are patients so afraid? So first of all, anybody in this generation, you know, that is basically under the age of like, I'm going to say probably 60, we haven't seen these diseases in our lifetime. We haven't seen measles, mumps, rubella. We haven't seen, we certainly haven't seen polio, smallpox, all of these things that have been essentially eradicated. And therefore we don't have, we don't fear them, right? We don't fear these vaccines. And when you look things up on the Googles and it's like, you know, complications, severe complications are rare. That says to you, well, then it's not really dangerous. Well, rare is, yeah, rare is rare, but when it's preventable, that's a totally different conversation. Like, yes, childhood drowning is rare. It's super rare. But should we still try to prevent it? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Like, so it, it's it's really hard, I think, to understand the gravity of these diseases when you've never seen them in your lifetime. Um, and I have that conversation with people a lot about the flu because I think people don't understand how many people actually die every year of the flu and therefore they don't think there's any utility for the vaccine and blah, blah, blah. So we're seeing it play out in real time right now with COVID because um, we don't have a vaccine. And so basically the universe is shut down because um, we've got a disease that's new we're trying desperately to control it. It's really tra easily transmissible. Yes, death is rare. However, d rare death still means now we're at, I think, 170,000 deaths in the course of six months. That is bananas. That is bananas. I mean, if that happened with cars, we wouldn't be driving anymore. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get in a car. You'd be like, that's oh, just not worth it. I'll just walk. And if you had to get in a car, you'd be terrified. So... Yeah, that's kind of my spiel on that. I, I, I don't know the answer to fully mandating things, um, but I, what I do know is that the reason we're pushing for mandates, or we, I mean, states like California, whatever, um, is just because ex exemptions have gone totally, totally crazy. Um, and it's, it's really sad. So, um, yeah, if you have questions about vaccines, always. Um, my dad and brother are both pediatricians. Um and I love to reach out to them for specific, you know, specific things that people answer. I certainly am not a vaccine expert, um, but there are plenty of people that are, you know. So if you have questions, um, look for the people who are actually experts in vaccines, not people who um, get essentially profit off of the anti-vax movement. Also, I want to say one thing really quick, because... I forget that people outside of the medical community may not know this. Um, and, and a lot of anti-vaxxers do know this and they like still continue to run with it. But really the reason that the anti-vax movement was started was in the 90s. I'm going to I'm going to like fact check myself while we're talking and see when this actually happened. So in up uh, maybe it was 1986. Okay. A physician in Britain named Andrew Wakefield put out a paper about a potential connection between 
the MMR vaccine and autism, right? And it was since learned that that was picked up by a couple of journals. People read it, went bananas, like the whole anti-vax movement started. It was discovered after the, after he put the paper out that he in fact worked for a massive pharmaceutical company. So like Andrew is what's funny is Andrew Wakefield is like the father of the anti-vax movement. And he actually worked for big pharma. Like how was, how can we reconcile these two things? You cannot. So he actually worked for a massive pharmaceutical company totally falsified all of the information in his study. The study was then retracted. He then was tried and found guilty of fraud, lost his medical license, and is no longer allowed to use the title. And we're allowed to speak of him as a fraud. Like, it's not, I don't have to say alleged. I was listening to Dr. Nikki Stamps' podcast this week about the, that movie Vaxxed. And she just said this thing that I love. She's like, it's so nice not to have to say alleged fraud. Like, no, tried and found guilty of fraud. And we're now allowed to, to call him fraudulent. So the vaccine since that time has been through immense testing. So much retrospective data has been looked at and reviewed ad nauseum, which is a total waste of time and resources, right? That has shown, no, there is no connection to the MMR vaccine and autism. But yet here we are. And this dude started all of it. And I don't even know that a lot of people realize that. So it, it's pretty wild. I just want it felt like I should throw that in there. Um, and if you want to listen to a good podcast about that, um, there I'll, I'll post it, but Nikki Stamps podcast this week was really good about it. Um, okay. Next question. So thoughts on antidepressants versus holistic. Uh, why, why do the two have to be mutually exclusive is what I would love to know. So are there holistic therapies for depression, anxiety, um, that work? Absolutely. And we know that, and that's been shown in what's difficult though, is to say one versus the other. So like do certain things like mindfulness, meditation, um, you know, exercise, do we know that those absolutely have an impact on anxiety and depression? Yes. Is it enough for that patient? That's up to the patient and their provider, right? So there are, I think, I think very clear, um, you know, basic surveys and questionnaires and conversations that you have when you go see a psychiatrist or a counselor that will kind of put a score on your depression and anxiety and how much is it affecting your, your daily life and your quality of living. And a lot of those things are how they make the, the call whether or not to put you on a medication. Um, now, could you practice all of those things and be on a medication and, and have a better outcome? Yeah, probably. So I think, um, I think we're definitely living in a time where we want to, we want to pick one or the other, or we feel like we have to pick one or the other. And you certainly don't, um, you can do both. Like I definitely take something for anxiety, and, but also know if I don't exercise and like drink too often, then my anxiety is like through the roof. Um, so that's just a very like anecdotal per personal story, but yeah, I think, um, the two are not mutually exclusive. You can always certainly, I think, seek out holistic things first and see how that goes for you. Unless you're having 
thoughts of harming yourself or somebody else. Um, or if you're, you know, if your quality of life is so poor, I mean, some people are so depressed, they can't, frankly, can't do those holistic things that we're talking about. You know, I mean, it's hard to want to get out of bed and exercise when you're so depressed, you don't want to get out of bed. So I think there's a threshold for medication. Um, but the two should be used in conjunction. Um, so I hope that answers that. I, um, I don't know. I'd love to have a mental health person on to talk more about that and, and talk about what they feel like they've, you know, they're comfortable with in terms of a threshold for medication. But um, I don't think you know the value of medication until you've been there and then started it um, or until you've really thought about it in that way. So the first time I ever saw a psychiatrist was like right after I got married and I was having through the roof anxiety, like could, it was really hard. And, but when I stepped back and I remember completing the PHQ nine and something, some other survey, I can't remember. Um, and like telling him what had been going on in our lives, we just got married. Ed's best friend was supposed to marry us and he died. My condo was flooded. It, like totally unexpectedly he died. My condo was flooded right before, right as we got engaged and then we got married and then we moved in together and it was in like the worst job in America um, with an attending who was like totally bonkers and I like still have PTSD, but <laughs> all of that together, I mean, I just was having uncontrolled anxiety. And when I went in and filled this thing out and the guy, you know, kind of made me take a step back and look at all that. And he's like, yeah, I, you've had a lot going on. And I was like, yeah, I have, you're right. Anyway. So all that to say, I think, seeing somebody, talking to somebody will really probably give you a better perspective on whether or not you might need medication. So next question, what are my hobbies and what would I be doing if I'm not an NP? Um, if I had a hobby, I don't know. I, maybe I do have a hobby and I just don't know it. If I had a hobby, it would probably be cooking. I do like to cook. Um, and, but it's not like, I wouldn't call it a hobby. I don't know, but I do like to cook. I really like interior design, so maybe I would do that if I was not an NP, but also it's overwhelming, and sometimes I'm like, I can't look at this stuff anymore. It hurts my brain, um, so I'm really thankful for my friends um, that are interior designers and look at pretty things all day because it, it, it hurts my brain. It's very overwhelming. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'd be a spin instructor. Probably not, though, because I'm not actually, like, super good at that. <laughs> I mean... I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But my hobbies are cooking, um, I love to exercise, and that's probably it, cooking and exercise. I don't like kayak or scrapbook. I don't know. I don't know what other hobbies there are, but that's those are probably my two. Um, is going to a chiropractor good for me? I love this question. Uh, well, it's not bad for you. I know that. Um, chiropractors run a gamut, right, to me. So there is such a great place in medicine for chiropractors. I think they do amazing work. Um, I saw one briefly throughout my second pregnancy and got therapeutic massage through their office. And, I mean, ultimately ended up having to have a steroid shot in my hip because I got to the point where I like, could not walk. But every time I would leave there, I'd have such relief and felt amazing temporarily. Um, so I think, yes, if you have a problem that a chiropractor specializes in, they certainly can be really good for you, really helpful. Um, my 
particular issue is with the bizarre, uh, I don't even know what to call it, kind of evolution of the chiropractor turning into like a primary care provider. Um, and I just don't really understand that. That's not what their training is in. Um, and I, I see a lot of chiropractors giving advice on things that are one medically inaccurate and not anatomically possible. Like let's take ear infections, for example, um, adjusting a spine does not anatomically, it, it is not possible for that to uh, affect a child's ear infections, but yet there is evidence to show that um, spinal manipulations in children can actually um, cause injuries and be harmful. So I don't, I don't understand things like that. So I, I don't know. I just don't know where they, where the expansion of that came from. But um, do I know chiropractors that I like? Absolutely. Um, I think there are some really good ones that stay within their field and their scope. Um, and but like everything, you know, I mean, I'm sure people would have the same opinion about nurse practitioners or you know whatever. So um, yeah, I hope that I hope that that answers that. Um, just depends. Could it be good for you? Sure. Could it be a waste of time? Sure. But there, you can say that about a lot of things. Um, how did I pick the name Dabbleco? So when I decided to do this, I, I was noticing on my own social media feed that there are a lot of medical providers who were talking about their own specialty on their own platform, which is obviously great. Um, and very much needed. But what I didn't see was very much of a, like a collaborative effort in one platform. So I'd see, you know, tons of OBs collaborating and, you know, sharing each other stuff. And then I'd see a bunch of plastics people or cardiology, whatever specialty, kind of sharing each other's content and collaborating. But I didn't see a collaborative group of just women's, not well, not even women's health, like women in medicine. Um, and I, I look at Goop a lot, really critically, um, but also like kind of in awe because Goop is, if you don't know, it's Gwyneth Paltrow's platform. It started as her blog and has morphed into this basically space where women turn to get health information. And that like devastates me because it's a lot of inaccurate information or a lot of vague information or a lot of information that makes people question, you know, what their doctor recommended for them, maybe in a good way, but also a lot of times in a bad way. So I just thought, okay, why is this missing in the actual healthcare space? So there is no goop that is real, you know, run by real medical providers. So my hope with Dabbleco was to create this collaborative platform that women in healthcare and women in medicine would want to contribute to and want to have their voices heard. And listen, running a social media platform is like incredibly time consuming. I don't know how these um, like physicians and NPs and PAs that have big, big, big accounts. I don't know how they do it um, because it, it consumes a ton of my life. Um, and it, and I don't have like a full-time busy medical practice. So I really don't know how they do it. I guess maybe they have interns and on that note, if anybody wants to be my intern, please let me know. Um, and 
So I wanted to create a platform for people who feel like I've got something to say and I have something to contribute, but I don't have time to run my entire, an entire social media platform. So I hope that's what I'm creating. It's still growing so much. I mean, I have 12,000 followers, which is wonderful, but it's also like, LOL. Um, it's nothing. So, you know, I'd love to see it be a huge platform where women in medicine are honored to be featured and, you know, strive to get their content out. It, because, listen, we don't, not everybody wants to be published in a journal. Not everybody wants to do a full, you know, peer-reviewed article. And that takes can sometimes years to get that out there. Like, sometimes you just want to say, hey, this new article in JAMA came out. Like, let's break it down. You know, let's, from a NP's perspective, for, from an OB's perspective, whatever, let's break that down. And I think that's what people are looking for. Um, you know, the, the lay person doesn't necessarily feel like they need to have the most um, recent, you know, peer-reviewed, double-blinded, you know, placebo study, but they see all the buzz about it and somebody's got to explain it to them. And if it's not us, who is it, you know? And I also saw a huge uptick in just these random people giving out health advice Oh my God, I'm not even answering the question. Okay. So, so the question is, how did I come up with a name? So the name I knew couldn't be my name because it's not about me. And hopefully it gets less and less in, about me as it grows. Um, so I didn't want my name in there. And I wanted it to imply that it's not about one thing. It's about things all over the whole span of medicine. So like we're, we're dabbling in a bunch of different things. Um, we're we're dabbling. That's all I can say. It's a verb. Um, and CO are my initials, but it just kind of fit. Actually, my friend Lindsay came up with that. And I was like, well, that's genius. So that's how I came up with Dabbleco. Sorry, that took me 12 minutes to answer that question. Um, migraine updates and developments. Okay. Um, I want to talk about migraines and this question specifically. Yeah, there's a new migraine medicine called Ubrevely, Ubrevely, I don't know how to say it because I don't prescribe it, um, that is new on the market. And I think there's like a new shot thing. Here's what I want to say about migraines. If you are listening to this podcast or are a human that has migraines, if you have not read the book, Heal Your Headache, I cannot help you. It is the most revolutionary, life-changing book for people who have migraines. And I have never heard like anyone. So I've seen multiple headache specialists. If Again, if you've been following me for any, any like period of time, I had brain surgery. I had like debilitating migraines for almost a year or like couldn't get out of bed, like took a month off of work, had the surgery, blah, blah, blah. It was crazy. It was on like three medications. It was awful. Anyway, heal your headache. I ultimately still had to have surgery, but I remember reading it and just being like, what? None of the people that I've ever seen have explained it to me in this way. It takes a concept uh, that is incredibly difficult. So first of all, migraines are incredibly difficult to treat. They're incredibly complicated because there are so many factors that play into a bigger picture of threshold that what's going to push you over the threshold to have a migraine, right? So we used to think they were totally vascular in nature and it was all about that. Now they don't even think that anymore. We don't even fully understand the mechanism of what causes migraines. So it's really difficult to develop medicines that prevent them and treat them. 
so the way that this book explains when to take and not medicine and not, excuse me, when to take and not take medicine, when, what to eat, why and why. So, I mean, I'll just give you an example of like when I went to Hopkins, one of the first things they asked me to do is quit drinking caffeine. I was like, I mean, yeah, but like I drink one cup of coffee a day. It's not like I'm like hoovering a pot of coffee. Like I don't, this is not a problem. And the NP that was started my workup was like, listen, just read this book. She's like, I, I'm telling you. And when I read the book and just the way that he explained threshold and rebound and being in that cycle, I was like, oh, caffeine, get out of here. Like even this one cup. And I'm telling you now I don't drink any caffeine really because there's just no point. There's no need. And I understand it so much better than I understood before. Um, so, okay, so that's my migraine update basically in a nutshell is if you have migraines or headaches at all. So a lot of people don't realize they're having migraines and that's a hundred percent what you're having. I actually had an argument with my husband about that yesterday. So he's like, had these symptoms and I was like, sounds like a migraine. And he said, in all his physician wisdom, this is totally not a migraine. And so I, in my pettiness, pulled up symptoms for migraine and like read them off to him and was like, I, I, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a migraine, man. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. That was really just a, an, a limerick for you guys to hear that little story and <laughs> glimpse into my life. But, um, yeah, if you haven't read that book, all that to say, I, I, there are so many people that are having headaches or you can have a migraine and not have a headache at all. Do you guys know that? Like you can have all these weird symptoms you can have nausea, sound sensitivity, dizziness, and never have a headache, and that can be a migraine, right? It's crazy. So real read, heal your headache. Um, if you would like to thank me for recommending this book, you can buy it through my migraine, I mean, my excuse me, my Amazon shop, and I will make approximately 12 cents commission. Um, I'm like sort of kidding, but also not. So that's migraines. Heal your headache. It's by David Buckholz. I think that's how you say his last name. Buckholz. It's B-U-C-H-O-L-Z. Awesome, awesome book. Next up is clean cleaning products during COVID. Guys, what does clean even mean? Like, does anybody know? Does anyone, can anyone even define it? I mean, what does that even mean? That's another podcast, probably for another day. Um... I'll say this, I am not comfortable with a cleaning product unless they can say on their label, meaning like it has been tested, that it's effective against coronaviruses. And maybe not this one specifically, but for example, we I often use seventh generation cleaning wipes because they're just not Clorox, which I also use Clorox to be clear um when I need it but I just to wipe my table down like where my kids eat every day and they're like licking the table I use seventh generation just to mentally make myself feel better because I actually don't think there's any difference and uh Ed one day came in and was like ah we gotta use Clorox and I looked on the box and I was like well actually this says that it cleans it kills you know flu E. coli salmonella coronaviruses because they will actually test these products against that so, I mean, I would say for right now, and it depends on what you're cleaning, like for schools and all this stuff right now, like it is not worth it to me to have products that we don't know if they're going to protect us against this virus right now. 
Um, that may change for me. I'm sure, you know, everything's a moving target. A lot of things are probably going to change. But, you know, Ed was talking about it this week. There's all this new, all these new cases of uh, cardiomyopathy in very young patients that have done totally fine after they've had coronavirus for a little while. And then all of a sudden they're half dead and they have um, a post-viral cardiomyopathy. And what that means is um, a swelling, like a post-infectious swelling of the muscles around the heart, which can kill you. Um, and it's makes daily life very difficult. Um, it's really hard to recover from if, if they recover from it. Um, so there's just, again, kind of going back to like, this kind of plays into the vaccine thing. Like there's so many things that are happening with coronavirus right now that we will not know the outcome and the, the long-term lasting effects of this for decades, right? Like this may cause sterility in you know, young women that we won't know for 20 years. This may cause like that happened with measles. I mean, and little boys. So this may cause, you know, lasting lung issues that, I mean, we just don't know because it's brand new. Um, so I'm, I clean cleaning products. I mean, it depends on what you, you're, you mean, it depends on what you're cleaning, but I would say, yeah, that, that's a, that's a tough call right now. I would just, you know, go with what we know has actually been tested, um, and found to be effective against coronaviruses specifically. And now for a very hard left, someone asked my most embarrassing moment. And I would like to tell you guys about the first time I did a triathlon. So uh, I decided about 10 years ago when Ed and I were dating that I was going to do triathlons. And so I signed up for this sprint. Now I had not, I was not a biker or a swimmer at this point. I actually used to run a ton, which I can't anymore because of my hip. I'm old. Um, so I signed up for a series of sprint triathlons, which is the shortest distance that you can do. So it's like a 0.3 mile swim, which sounds like nothing, but it's quite significant. Uh, a 13 mile bike, I think. And then like a two or three mile run at the end. I don't know. It, it really is not crazy. And like, if you're in pretty good shape at all, like you should be able to do this really no problem. Ed's evidence by the story. So I train, I like, I buy a bike actually like I loved swimming, thought I was going to be really good at that. Um, I had always been a runner. So I go to my first day and actually my friends, Lyles and Julia were doing it with me. And we're like, all have your numbers and blah, blah, blah. So we show up to the thing and I'm like, my God, like there are, there are like clearly, this is like a training day for people that do an Ironman is what I'm finding out. But then there are tons of people like me who are just there to like bebop around. So there's people with equipment I've never seen. And I don't know. I'm like, what is happening? So I do the swim and, you know, I, in a pool can swim 0.3 miles, half a mile, a mile, no problem. We do the 0.3 miles in this like disgusting pond, whatever. And I'm like, wow, that was significantly harder than I thought it was going to be. So I get out, hop on the bike and I start pedaling. So people are just flying past me, you know, which I feel like is pretty normal at this point, because again, there are so many people there that clearly like this is their profession and they're going to do an Ironman next weekend. And they're just like gearing up for that. So there's people smoking me left and right. Then people start flying past me that I'm like, oh, that's good. Oh, oh, by the way, you have your net, your, uh, your age written on the back of your calf. So like everybody can tell I'm at this point 25 ish. So I've got 25 in the back of my calf. 
So people are smoking me, you know, the smoking me is actually slowing down. Less and less people are smoking me, but that's because, like, I'm one of the last people in the pack. So I'm kind of getting more and more by myself, not seeing as many people. And I'm pedaling. I'm looking around like, I am pedaling. Like, I could not pedal any harder if my life depended on it right now. Like, I am going as fast as I can. And then all of a sudden, I see this one with a 72 on her calf. Absolutely smokes me on like a beach cruiser. And I'm like, what is going on? So part of this triathlon, if you know Charleston at all, you have to at one point take, you're mostly on like neighborhood roads. And then all of a sudden you have to get on like a pretty main highway, which they have blocked off by police for all the triathlon people. So you get on the highway for like a quarter of a mile, basically while you turn around. So, and there's also like a red light involved. So there's police out there. I'm pedaling. I'm like dying. I mean, I am dying. And the cop's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just like, apparently terrible at this. And as I pass them by the red light and get back onto the back roads, I hear them be like, okay, last, that was the last one. Bring it in. And I'm like, oh my God, what is happening? I mean, I'm dying a slow, slow death. It's also June in Charleston. So it now it started at eight. So now it's like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I mean, the sun's coming out. It's hot as balls. So... I'm bringing it back in. This little man comes up to me on a truck. I mean, in a truck. And he stops. And I hear he's kind of like riding by me. And he's like, oh, ma'am. You know, he's being so sweet. He's like, we really want you to, to finish. We're so, you know, we're, like, we're so proud of you. And we really want you to finish. But, but also we're a little bit nervous because you really, you're the last one out here. And you got about halfway to go. And then you got to do the run. And I was like... All right, like F it, I'm done, I'm out. Just pick it up. I gotta go. And I was like, no, I'm calling it. I don't know what's happening. I mean, I, I at this point, I'm like, I am. I have been defeated by this triathlon. So he's like, okay, let's just throw your bike in the truck. Just nothing to be embarrassed about, you know. Dude picks up my bike, and he's like, oh man, ooh, both of these tires, your tires are very flat. And I was like, oh, cool. All right. And he's like, oh, you know what? Okay. Well, this explains it. I am not a bike technician, but your brakes seem to be locked in the on position. <sighs> anyway, so that's my most embarrassing story. I was trying to ride my bike 13 miles with two flat tires with the brakes in a locked on position, like a moron in a group of people. Now, the point is, I did redeem myself, and I came back and did, it was a series of four, I did the next three, and it was totally fine, and I completed them like a normal person, and not a complete idiot who does not know how to operate a bicycle. The end. So, thanks for listening. <laughs> I hope y'all enjoyed that, um, that story. That was super embarrassing. It is one of my favorite stories, though, of all time, because, wow, I just, you know... Guys, can't be good at everything. Thanks for listening. As always, please, if you like this podcast, if you like hearing from medical professionals and people who have real information, accurate information, and can help you figure out what you need, please rate, subscribe, review, tell your friends, share the podcast. It's so helpful. That's how people find out about the podcast. And you guys will hear a new podcast next week with Dr. Richard Mattal in Texas. And it is a really, really good one. 
tons of info about intermittent fasting, which a lot of people asked about, and that's why I didn't answer it. All right, see you guys next week. Thanks.